Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. The mic is set up over in the corner there. Please make sure that your questions are brief, uh, short preambles, really short. A question and uh, your name first, a question, and then sit down so we have lots of time for other questioners. Okay, thank you. As you, as you can see, I have the, uh, the PowerPoint up, so if I need to use, make reference to some of the images, then I, I will do so. Thank you very much for your talk. And I saw you looking right at me, when, uh, moderator, when, uh, when you said brief. I'm Bev Mundell-Atherstone. And um, last year at SOCPA, we had a talk by Mark Gettle on the muzzling of scientists. So I just want to mention that on Monday at noon, in the quad outside Markham Hall, Friends of Science will be holding a rally to stand up for science. But my question is, when you were talking about man-made effects of um, man-made disasters. Um, why we didn't talk about the destruction of the watersheds, which is really part of what the lack of regulation of this Alberta government is contributing to flooding. And in some places where the where the logging, clear-cut logging is taking place, it goes from the top of the mountain right down to the river's edge, which is actually against the regulations, but the regulations are not being followed. So could you talk a little bit about the watershed destruction, specifically in terms of the flooding this time, and with the increased um, logging development, um, perhaps the same thing could happen to Claire's home? Uh, interestingly, we were speaking a little bit about this uh, at, uh, at our table, and I made reference uh, to some work that was done, uh, this is going back to the 80s and the 90s now, by a, a geomorphologist from the Geography Department at Calgary. His name is Larry Cordes. He's now he's long since retired. And uh, what uh, Dr. Cordes uh, found through uh, the examination of... Uh, uh, of uh, prairie cottonwood recruitment, sort of work that Stuart Rood from the biology department does uh, here at U of L. Uh, what Cordes was able to find is that the frequency of flood events in the Bow Basin increased after the uh, European, I'll call it, invasion of Western Canada, uh, the agricultural settlement of Western Canada that took place starting in earnest in 1900. So. Yeah, when, when you make changes uh, to a basin and you change land cover, you're, you're going to change the hydrologic uh, response function. And that's what this particular schematic diagram is meant, meant, meant to illustrate uh, for you. So you can see at the upper reaches of the basin, we've got a rainfall event occurring. A certain amount of that precipitation is caught up in the, in the leaves of the vegetation. Um, and that is... Uh, 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 there's a bit of a lag effect uh, there, kind of like a sponge effect. Uh, 
uh, you obviously have, have evaporation and transpiration, so not all of the moisture that comes into the system is going to end up flowing out at the end of the system. Now imagine what happens when you remove those trees in a clear-cutting kind of situation, or you don't uh, exercise good forest management practices and you, you clear-cut right up to the edge of a water body or a river or a stream or something like that. Now they've been, t- they've been looking at this kind of thing in BC now for 15 or 20 years, and the BC Agricultural Code of Practice um, it has you know some significant teeth in it. Um, in reviewing our, our management practices, the, I think the BC model is something to look at uh, quite seriously. Uh, Stan Holton, uh, Dr. Johnson. If we uh, use the last glaciation of southern Alberta as a benchmark to measure the maturity of the Old Man River Basin, uh, what would you estimate uh, the extent of that reversal to be with uh, the Old Man River Dam having, having been opened only three times? And... Uh, how many more times uh, do would you estimate, uh, you know, that damage to um, continue, uh, you know, into the future, uh, you know, based on, um, you know, how many more times we can open that gate to it before it reaches its uh, full reversal. Um. <clears throat> My area of research is uh, uh, human dimensions of natural hazards. Uh, I'm a social scientist. I'm a human geographer. I'm certainly not qualified in any stretch of the imagination to deal with with that particular question. I'm really sorry. Um, I'd like to be able to stand up here and be the authority on all things, but uh, I would be talking out of the bottom of my hat if I attempted any kind of serious and thoughtful response to that question. I'm really sorry. I, I just don't know. Thank you for your presentation. Uh, my name is Rena Wass. Uh, one of the first things you said in your presentation was uh, the uh, proposition of holding leaders uh, accountable to a higher standard. Um, one of the concerns I've got is how can we do that if they don't talk about climate change? Uh, we have a forum this afternoon at the university on climate change. I'm wondering how many from our local government will be there, uh, let alone the provincial, and certainly the federal government is trying to minimize this. Uh, the frequency of flooding, I think, will increase uh, due to climate change. Uh, can you comment on that, please? Uh, again, this is actually something we spoke about very briefly at our table. Um, any commentator or any scientist who points to a single event and says that this is uh, indicative of uh, global climate change and a definitive, uh, definitive proof uh, is, not, is, is, in my view, not credible. Uh, we will not know uh, uh, whether or not uh, this is uh, just a, a regular uh, blip in the system, might have happened uh, in the absence of any kind of environmental changes going on on a global scale and, and smaller scales. 
uh, or maybe it is. We don't know. But what this is is a wake-up call. And we can look at each one of these as a wake-up call. And if the climate models are correct and there is a growing consensus uh, around, uh, around uh, that body of work, uh, even as we speak, I would, I would imagine, what each of these represents is a potential window on the future. And if the, mo if the models are correct, we're going to get uh, more of these sorts of events. Uh, they may well be more extreme. So the increased in frequency, increased in, 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 uh, in the extreme nature, and even more importantly, increased uncertainty. Now, uncertainty is, is, is what the business community and the insurance companies, uh, insurance sector in particular, are really, really concerned about. Um, I remember just talking to you about, you know, just give you a little anecdote about the role of uncertainty. When the New Democratic Party was elected in Ontario to form the, form the government, uh, I asked a friend of mine who worked for Shell Oil, uh, what's the view of Shell? What's the view of big, big oil about, you know, these you know, lefties in Ontario. And he said, actually, we're not really terribly worried uh, about, uh, about that government. And I said, well, how come? And he said, well, person for person, they're smarter than any other, any other group in the House. So when you hire people, don't you always hire the smartest people possible? So we're pretty, re we're pretty certain that we can, we can work with them and, and they'll develop policy that, you know, may not be exactly to our liking, but we'll work with them and we'll work with the policies that they develop and we'll move forward. So he was basically talking about certainty. And then he went out to add that where we're really worried is BC. Because every time the premier of BC opens his mouth to answer a reporter's question, he makes new policy. <laughs> Do you remember who the BC premier was about the same about that time? You bet. And so there was this 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 uh, tremendous uncertainty. I mean, big business doesn't really care whether there's a dictator in a Middle Eastern country, so long as there's certainty around their investment, right or wrong. I mean, I'm not going to get into the morality of that, but certainty is a really important is an important uh, thing to keep in mind. And uh, are we entering an era where biophysically and climatologically and environmentally we're, we, we seem to be on the cusp of greater uncertainty? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm enough of a, I'm, I'm risk averse enough that I don't, I don't need to know definitively. I don't make my investment decisions based on that. Who does? If, if anybody does, then they're smarter than we, most of the rest of us in this room. I'm Natasha Fairweather. I work in disaster management for the Red Cross. And I'm interested in the uh, community engagement element that you were discussing at the beginning. I was just wondering what the goal of such a community engagement process would be. Are you talking about engaging community to civic participation or to personal preparedness? Or what, uh, if you could just expand on that. There are many different objectives that can be satisfied from increased community engagement. I uh, was referring to it mainly in the context of um, uh, policy and planning moving forward at, at the sort of broad umbrella structural scale. Um, certainly, if, if you're going to be in a situation where uh, the state, 
in this case, the provincial government has to move in and expropriate people's property, for example. And, you know, I mean, think about people who live in, in some of these vulnerable zones, particularly, you know, in Calgary along Elbow Drive and in Bonas, for example. I mean, people have been wanting to live in those areas for years and years and years, and, and they, their houses mean a lot to them. Um, the more they understand what's going on, the more they understand why things need to be done, the more they have a stake uh, and, and are involved in the discussion, uh, the more likely it is that there will be buy-in. They may not like it, you know. Every time I got benched by my hockey coach, you know, it was better when he explained it. I didn't like it much, but at least at least I could I could take it a little bit better than if I didn't. I was like wondering, so, you know, what did I do this time? I'm not sure if that answers your question or not. Thanks for your presentation, Tom. My name is Deb Jarvie, and I'm just wondering, is the 100-year flood plan still relevant in light of the uncertainties? And as one of the two may submit, is it, does it even make sense anymore, and is it being remodeled? Thanks. Uh, yeah, these kind of planning rules of thumb are really kind of interesting because it, uh, if you trace it back in, 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 in the literature, sort of the intellectual lineage of some of these ideas, at some point somebody just picked it off the, off the tree, you know? Why not one in 90 eight years, whatever. Well, the one in 100-year flood translates into a return probability in any given year of 1%. So uh, it's not that we've had a flood and we're not going to get another one like this for 100 years. It just means next year the probability of a, of a flood of, of that magnitude is 1%. And if that is an acceptable level of risk for people, fair enough. British Columbia, I believe, uses one in 1,000 as the benchmark. I'm not absolutely certain about that. A friend of mine who has done some planning work, and well, he did a planning degree in BC many, many years ago, made that comment to me a couple of weeks ago, and I haven't verified it, so I wouldn't bet money on it. But uh, it wouldn't surprise me a bit. And I think if you were to look back, probably it comes in the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. 100 is a nice round number. 1% is a nice round number. It's politically... Uh, acceptable, we can sell it, you know. So these are the kinds of things that you need to have that kind of discussion. Is that the level of risk that we as a community are willing to to accept, or do we want to plan to uh, a higher standard than that? And that's that's part of what that community engagement and that dialogue would help to sort out. My name is Mary Shillington. Thanks, Tom, for your presentation. I particularly enjoyed your sense of humor, and uh, I gather you live beside some nice people on the west side. And uh, <laughs> uh, I, I guess I'm a bit of a cynic, well, not a bit, a lot of a cynic, uh, about the present provincial government. And so, uh, you know, the fact that they're still using engineers and not involving other uh, professional people in, in concerns about flooding and planning and that kind of stuff really doesn't surprise me in many ways, but concerns me. So, you know what, uh, uh, because the public is not really encouraged to engage uh, particularly, what can we be doing to see that other people are included in those planning, uh, other professional people, and what would your advice be to us about that? Well, you know, I can say this because I'm not from Alberta. 
Hence the comment about the left, I suppose. Um, but I, I have been uh, continually and often surprised at the deference and reference here in Alberta to science. It is almost a secular religion. And think about how we represent science in popular media. I, I often talk with students about this. I, the, uh, there's a commercial for um, a multivitamin called Centra or something. And it, it shows a woman who is a, coming out. She's just gone down for a dive. and She's on her boat. And she's a marine biologist or something. And, and she says, I study the science of the sea. So that automatically in people's minds establishes her as a credible voice. Why is she a credible voice? Because she's a scientist. We don't know anything about her science. We don't know. She may have finished, you know, like, like the Yahoo set my arm when I was 18. He probably finished in the bottom 50% of arm setting class because <laughs> it's still sore. Uh, we have no idea whether she's good, bad, indifferent, you know, couldn't get tenure or whatever. Um, but we trust her because she's a scientist. And then she goes on and she says, but I trust the science of Central. Well, no. No scientists would trust. They don't even trust their mothers. <laughs> I mean, that's just absolute nonsense. Um, we, we have this notion that, 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 that science will answer all, and, and that is the, 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 the root to all, to all, all truth and, and all knowing, and, and, and it ain't. And it certainly isn't the root to a fulfilled life, and it's certainly not, not the way that we approach in serious ways a serious society complex problems that demand... I mean, <clears throat> I'm going to probably have to, I had a knee replacement and it didn't take. I'm going to have to do it again. I'm not going to go to a cardiologist to tell him about my knee. I'm going back to a knee, an orthopedic surgeon. So if we want a review of policies and procedures and planning structures and so on and so forth, let's, let, you know, let, let's not go to the cardiologist. Let's go to the orthopedic surgeon for that. So uh, how, how do we get people thinking that way? I don't know. I try to, I try to pollute as many young minds as I can. But, you know, doesn't always work. I was once said on a course evaluation that I used two big words. Spelled T-O. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. Hey, my name is Knut Peterson. Thanks, Tom. And uh, sorry for the uh, technical difficulties, but uh, you survived... My question is related to uh, George Vanderbilt's uh, report from the MLA, former MLA from High River. Uh, the government seems to take great pride in telling us that they implemented 13 out of 18 recommendations. I suspect that the uh, five they missed were the most important ones, but uh, do you know anything about that? Um. That's actually something I've missed. I don't know. I've not seen that reference. Uh, I'd be interested if you could tell me where you read that, and I could follow up on it, and I'll put a student on it. Um, I, uh, pardon? In 140 words, or characters. As that great Western philosopher Ian Tyson once said, just because you say it doesn't make it so.
Honest to God, I don't know. I have no idea. I have no idea. Oh yeah, I, I've, I've read the report and I know what the 18. I've got it on my on my machine. Um, I've read the report. I know that there are 18 uh, recommendations. I don't know which ones uh, they have implemented. If they did, they implemented them pretty quickly over a relatively short period of time, uh, given that it was just released in uh, in uh, in 2012. Unless they were working on it behind the scenes, behind you know before that when the at a time during which the premier said they didn't know anything about it. My name is Frank Toth, professor. I, uh, I like the rest, enjoyed your statistics about our undeniable floods. Historically, they built the biggest boat, so-called, if you want to believe that, biggest boat, the floods in, in, in the early saga of humanity. I had the fortunate, fortunate to uh, live in High River for over 20 years and also more than that in Calgary. It's, it's suffice to say it's got to be a popular place whether it's on the river or not because our shortest pre Prime Minister Canada lived there and the lady that wants to be a leader lives there. But the, the, the mayor elected after me, after I left, built 42 houses within a quarter of a mile from the river, despite the fact that Klein, I, I call him Archie Bunker, said there's no more help for anybody builds there, okay? I'm a little amazed that you say that the, what, whatever man does is relatively not too important because it's cyclical. I, I don't think I heard you right there because, you know, you have governments put in by money. Uh, what's the basic solution? Not the scientific, we see it. What's the basic solution to, to e evolve finally not to, not to have these, uh, you know, pop population uh, terrorist actions? What, what is it, aesthetic, political, what is it? That's the same question everybody asks at every meeting. <laughs> What, what can we do about it? You get a 23% numerical majority in Ottawa with a 36% majority. Alberta, a lame mule, blind mule can get in and, and, and control it, and money controls it, the whole work. So what's the most important thing? How can we get away from uh, being led around by, no, by the nose, sitting mesmerized? Have you any answer to that? <laughs> I, I know where I'd like to start. <laughs> and I, I, I believe that it starts with what uh, Mrs. Kidd, my grade eight history teacher taught me and taught us. She stressed in us the importance of, uh, of an informed and active citizenry. Now, when I look around this room, I see an informed and active citizenry, but I see a group that has some serious succession issues. <laughs> 
not to put it lightly. Um, and when you have an ill-informed and apathetic citizenry, then we open ourselves up to the possibility of being of, of being told mistruths. So now, I I believe very strongly in in a well-rounded education that involves not only uh, an education in 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 the sciences and in the arts, but also in the social sciences. And I, I think that, and this is a bit of a plug for my discipline, I think one of the worst things that has happened in the education system in Canada has been the uh, watering down of history and geography into, um, into social studies. Uh, it, it, it's taught kind of as a catch-all, you know, sometimes by the volleyball coach because we needed a volleyball coach and we'll, we'll let him teach social studies. And so it opens the citizenry up to remember a couple of years ago when, I'll just give one example, a couple of years ago when there was a uh, um, uh, possibility that was being discussed of a coalition between two parties in Ottawa who would have enough votes to form the government. Well, uh, the party in power referred to that as undemocratic. Uh, sorry, as unconstitutional. Well, there's nothing in our constitution that says that's not possible. So that was um, not, not, not truthful. Uh, the second way that the second approach was that uh, that was uh, coalitions are unprecedented in Canadian history, and that's also not true. We had coalitions during World Wars One and World Wars Two. Now, to some extent, the Liberals were saved from themselves because after both those coalitions, the Liberals went into the went went, went into the wilderness for about ten years. So, <laughs> to some extent, the Liberals were saved from themselves by not being, not forming that coalition. But nevertheless, the fact that you've got a, a, a population that, that just doesn't know their history, their, their, in this case their political history, uh, leads that population open to, um, uh, to being manipulated. And, and to be, um, I mean, how, how, how can it be acceptable in a modern democracy that fundamentally important policy changes are announced and they... Friday of a long weekend. How how can that how can we stand how can we stand for that in civil society? A uh, number of years ago, one of the most fundamental changes to rural planning uh, in in Alberta involved removing the development control for uh, large intensive feedlots from the Municipal Government Act and assigning that to the Natural Resources Conservation Board. Um, well, that announcement was actually going to go out on a long weekend on a Friday, but they couldn't get a conference call together, so it went out on a Tuesday morning after the long weekend. How can that possibly be the most fundamental change? Whether you agree with that decision or not, I'm not even talking about that, but the most fundamental change to the, rural, the structure for rural land use planning in the province in about 50 years gets announced at about 9 o'clock on a Tuesday morning in July. That seems willful to me. This will be our last question. Tom, my name is Mike Williams. Um, a couple of points regarding public policy and, and 
how projects, uh, at least the ones I was involved in in Ottawa, worked was that if you had 15 or 20 people from different uh, disciplines that could be impacted by your policy or project, they each had a veto as to whether or not you could move forward. So if there are environmental concerns regarding downstream implications of clear-cut logging, somebody from the environmental group could simply say, we'll let you log, but you're going to have to build the following safeguards you know, into your project to do that. I don't find our current democracy is being run by anything more than special interest groups. And I think we've got to find a way to get more people involved in a way that has an impact rather than just a token we showed you, you know, leave us alone. We know what's best for you. You know, sometimes at 20 people at a table, only one person's right. But that thing should carry rather than the majority who have special interests saying, no, we, you know, no compromise. You're overruled. We're out of here. Any comment on that? Well, I'm not, not quite sure uh, which political philosopher it was who commented that one sign of a civil society is how they treat the minorities and how they treat uh, minority, minority points of view. You know, practically, you know, I'm, this is about as close to advocacy as I've ever gotten, to tell you the truth. I'm a pretty conservative guy. I don't, you know, um, I, don't, I don't tend to get involved in these sorts of issues um, uh, beyond the kind of work that I, the work that I do. But I, I, do, I do think it's important that, that, that those people who feel comfortable in that role, that's not a role that I feel particularly comfortable in, but for people who do feel comfortable in that role to, uh, to seriously engage our political leaders. But I also think that we can take lessons from groups like Pollution Probe, for example. Pollution Probe have been tremendously, tremendously successful, especially in Ontario, in uh, bringing in uh, sound, sound legislation. But I'll tell you, you go into a meeting, uh, and, and, I, you know, and I have done this in the past, you go into a meeting, and, and, like, the pollution probe guys aren't, aren't the folks who, you know, look like they just came out of Mountain Equipment Co-op catalog. You know, they're not the people who, you know, it's like we, we know when something something's important is going to happen in the water building, the new water building and up at the university because they put on their best fleece. You know, uh, I mean, these, these folks all have their number five business suits on just like the lawyers do, just like the engineers do, just like the petroleum folks do so you know they're, they're meeting them they're saying okay fine let's just play that card that's out of there you know we, we can dress like grown-ups do and and they're taken they're taken seriously you know um, I, I'm not sure that um, uh, I'm not sure that, that that other types of other types of more more in your face advocacy is necessarily going to win you as many um, uh, as many converts necessarily to the to the cause, you know, walk softly and carry a big club kind of thing is probably a better way to do it. <laughs> not sure if that answers your question or not. Kind of talked around it, I suppose. With with that, folks, uh, we're going to wrap up our afternoon, and uh, I've got a couple announcements. But let's put our hands together for Dr. Johnson.